Hey friends, I'm honored to have on today an intriguing and respected scholar who has shaped and is shaping many in how they understand Paul, myself included. The author of many books such as Reading Revelation Responsibly, Reading Paul, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, and a new book that I'm sifting through titled Participation in Christ, where he deals with union or participation in Christ in the letters of Paul and the theology and spirituality of, of St. Paul. Dr. Michael Gordon is uh, no stranger to overthinking Christian. We ran an interview um, uh, with him about Revelation a few years ago. And uh, Dr. Gorman, you also shared your perspective a few months ago on the blog about how Christians can respond to the pandemic and uh, also Christian rights in general, an article which has really made the rounds on social media being one of our most shared and visited article of ours uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so thank you for the work you're doing and, and your voice of reason. And uh, this is your first time on the Overthinking Christian podcast, so welcome. Thank you very much, and, and thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's, it's good to be with you and with your listeners. Sure. And maybe to start off, maybe can we unpack a bit about your uh, unique experience being in both uh, the Protestant world and the Catholic world. Uh, you teach at St. Mary's. Uh, is that in Baltimore? It is. Yeah. St. Mary's Seminary and University is the only, it's the oldest Catholic seminary in the United States. It goes back to 1791. So it's been around a long time. It's also the only one in the world, as far as we know, that has um, an ecumenical, or if you want, rather call it an interdenominational uh, graduate school within it as the second theological school. So there's two two theological schools working side by side. One just getting Catholic priests ready for, or, or Catholic men ready for Catholic priesthood, and the other open to any and all students. We have Catholics, Baptists, Pentecostals, um, non-denominational, everything you get, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans, every, everything, and most of those people are um, lay people who plan to stay lay people. Some are already ordained and, and are in, in, in the ecumenical division. Some are already ordained and just need a theological education because they didn't get one before their church service began. Uh, some are going on from here to other uh, seminaries to do an MDiv. Um, we we only offer MA um, two MA degrees and a an advanced studies degree, which is like a THM and a Doctor of Ministry. Okay. So, yeah, awesome. And it definitely gives you a unique uh, perspective, seeing seeing both worlds uh, so up close, the Catholic and the, the Protestant divide. Um, um, yeah, that's I, exactly right. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and um, this new book, Participation in Christ, can you spell out real quick um, what you mean by participation or what theologians mean by union um, with Christ in general? Sure. Just a, a minor correction. The, the book is called Participating in Christ. Mm, got it. Um, yeah. Uh, I, the reason I say that is because I do have a little pamphlet or booklet, I guess is a better word, simply called Participation, Paul's Vision of life in Christ. That's available from Grove booklets in England. And if your listeners or you and your listeners don't know about Grove books, um, they're a really valuable resource 
they have hundreds of little booklets. They're all, all about 10,000 words, so they're not long. It's like a long article turned into a booklet. And I've, I've done a couple of booklets with them, but they're, they're a kind of um, British evangelical publishing house in Cambridge, England, and do a lot of really good work. Um, uh, lots of people that, that your uh, audience might be familiar with have, have published little booklets in that series. So anyhow, um, that, that wasn't so much an advertisement as it was a clarification that sure. there's a longer book, Participating in Christ, which came out just about exactly a year ago. Um, but to answer the question, I could spend the next hour just talking about participation, but basically, if you think about Paul's letters, one of the most important phrases he uses is in Christ, or in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus. Many, many, many occurrences of this. And at the same time, there are also some occurrences of the idea of Christ being in us. Mm. either singular or plural, uh, Christ in me, Christ in us. And there are other, there's other language about um, what we might call uh, doing something with Christ, co, so being co-crucified or being co-glorified or um, a number of other just things that can be done with Christ or that have been done with Christ. So when we put all these together, we begin to come up with an understanding that for Paul, being in and with Christ and having Christ within us, singular and plural, is at the heart of the, the Christian experience, the heart of being a follower of Jesus. And I guess a way of saying this is we are kind of caught up into the presence of and the power and the story of Jesus in a way that transforms us. So there's a great deal of overlap between the idea of participating in Christ and uh, participating in the Spirit or having the Spirit uh, as a vital part of, of the life of being a disciple of Jesus. So um, participation is about uh, such a close identification with Jesus and his especially his death and resurrection, that we are uh, turned into or transformed into people who are increasingly shaped in the mold of his self-giving faithfulness and love. Mm. Wow. And I, I hear you saying that transformation is at the heart um, of discipleship. Is, do you think that the, this motif of transformation, even in the letters of Paul, is something that can be lacking in, in many of our Christian circles? Well, I think it can be. I don't think it's deliberate, and I don't think it's completely absent, but um, there are various forms, if you will, of Christian faith that that underestimate the role of, of transformation. Um, sometimes there's an overemphasis on, say, justification by faith as if that was the be-all and the end-all of, of Christian existence. Uh, sometimes there's an overemphasis on maybe um, either spiritual gifts or, or uh, activity out in the world, what some might call social justice, that, that is less than um, fully grounded in the transforming power of of the gospel so 
not to criticize any of those things, but to say sometimes they are, they, they don't um, ground themselves fully enough in the reality of, of transformation. Uh, and that's, I think that's what Paul is all about. Um, one of my colleagues in the field of New Testament studies also has a really nice little book. David De Silva is his name. It's called Transformed, um, Transformation, excuse me. Yeah, Transformation, The Heart of Paul's Gospel. And it was actually, it was produced out your way, published out in Bellingham, Washington, hmm. uh, by Lexham Press about five or six years ago. Um, good, good little booklet summarizing Paul's gospel in terms of transformation. Wow. I'm sorry, not booklet, book. Okay. Yeah. No, no, David De Silva, big fan of his, so I will, I will be checking that out. Um, and and I, you, you talk about justification by faith in the book and kind of how it relates to union, to union or participating in Christ. Can, yeah. can, can you unpack that a little bit, how justification by faith alone and the theme of participating in Christ, how do they relate? Yeah, it's a good, great question. Um, first of all, I think it's important for us to make sure that we, when we talk about justification, we say it's justification by grace through faith. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to say because God is the initiator. Our faith doesn't save us. Our faith appropriates God's gift of salvation. I like to refer to grace and and the objective uh, act of God in Christ as the means of salvation or the means of justification. And our response of faith is the mode uh, of of salvation. So the means and the mode. And I'll, I'll say something about each of them and connect them to um, justification and participation. So um, justification by faith or by grace through faith is is in Galatians 2 is described in Paul's language as an act of co-crucifixion with Christ. Now many scholars, interpreters will say, well you have justification, then you have co-crucifixion, but I think if you read that passage carefully, they're one in the same. Justification happens when we die with Christ and then implicitly are raised with him so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if you read, especially Galatians 2.16 carefully, it doesn't just say we believed in Christ. The Greek preposition there is ace, which means into. We were we, we believed into him. So when we when we believed, we were moved from outside Christ into Christ. Hmm. And it's no longer um, that we are away from Christ, but we are in Christ and he is in us. And in the next chapter in Galatians 3, Paul says, we were baptized into Christ, all of us, male, female, Gentile, Jew, slave free. So being it's, it's the language of movement from outside Christ into Christ. And it's not different from justification by faith. It is what happens in justification. We are brought into this new reality of being in Christ, this new relationship. And interestingly, the only two places where Paul uses the verb co-crucified, I have been crucified with Christ, is in uh, Galatians 2 about justification, and in Gal- I'm sorry, in Romans 6 about about baptism. We have been baptized into Christ. We have believed into Christ. So justification 
by faith and baptism into Christ are two sides of, of one coin, I think, for Paul. And as a result, we can't separate these two things. You, 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 you have justification now being much more participatory and therefore transformative than simply a legal, uh, a legal pronouncement. That's that's very helpful in, in understanding it, so thank you. And uh, I have a question about, I guess, when it comes to co-crucifixion, co-resurrection, co-glorification, um, is this an ongoing reality in the life of the believer? Um, or is this um, more of a one-time thing? Or, or is there some nuance there in the letters of, of Paul? Yeah, well, I mean, let's start with the co-crucifixion and justification in chapter 2 of Galatians. It's in the perfect tense, I have been crucified, which essentially in Greek means I am crucified. So it has a starting point, but no ending point, at least not in this life. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a reality of, of severing uh, our relationship with anything that might claim to justify us, whether it's obedience to the law or some ethnic um, uh, status or other status. And yet we are always in a position of... of of dying um, with Christ on a day-to-day basis. Paul says, I I die daily, which isn't just fighting wild animals, but uh, is a a description of his understanding of of Christian life. The irony is, or the paradox better, is that because we are also raised with Christ, both in in the original state of, of faith and baptism, but also living in that, once you're raised, you're raised forever, um, there's this paradox that we are living in the what I now call resurrectional cruciformity. Mm. It's, it's cross-shaped existence that's infused with the power and the life of the resurrection. So uh, it is an ongoing. It, it has a beginning point, but it has it has no ending point until final glorification, which is eschatological, which is heavenly, whatever you want to call it. And that, for Paul, is completely, um, it's in its fullness, is future, although it has um, this, this transformation that goes on and on in this life, as he says in Second Corinthians, uh, we're gazing and, and becoming, uh, a moving, if you will, from, from glory to glory. Mm. Wow. Uh, in chapter 10 of your new release, you, you created or, or you um, worked on an imaginative, um, imaginative letter from Paul the Apostle uh, addressed to churches uh, of North America. C- can you unpack mm-hmm. what first inspired this in your thought process? Uh, and related to that, uh, you, you've studied the life and thought and theology of Paul. Uh, and, and so what do you think Paul would find most unsettling about our modern ways um, of doing church, and on the other side, what might Paul resonate with and affirm? Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> um, let me go back to one thing I forgot to mention about justification before I answer that. Sure. Most I, most Protestants or people who come out of sort of Protestant or non-denominational churches don't realize that the Protestant reformers refused to separate justification from union with Christ. That's true in Calvin and true in Luther. So the, the Protestant tradition has sometimes neglected that, mm. but it's, it's, it's right there in the Reformers. Okay, so... No, that's helpful. The, yeah, the letter to uh, American, or North American Christians, excuse me, uh, 
some years ago, I don't remember how many exactly now, maybe five or six years ago, I had been invited to a um, keynote, a conference at the Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York, which is on the campus of Roberts Wesleyan University. And um, I decided, because it was sponsored by the uh, Canadian, well, it, had changed its, it has changed its name, but a Canadian Biblical and Theological Association and an American one. <coughs> Excuse me. So I decided to, to try to say something to that audience about what St. Paul might say to Canadians and Americans, yeah. which actually might be somewhat different. But anyhow, I had to, I had to blend them. Yeah. And so I came up with this idea based in part on the famous letter of Martin Luther King Jr. when he was in Birmingham jail, letter from a Birmingham jail, about which I had done some research. And also I learned that um, in one of his sermons, which he preached about, oh, I think 16 times in the course that we know of, in the course of his ministry, uh, he actually wrote a letter to Christians in North America. So I was inspired in part by, by Martin Luther King and also frustrated with the fact that many American or North American Christians either loved Paul for the wrong reasons or disliked Paul in the extreme, almost to the point of hatred for a variety of reasons. So I, I wanted to challenge those who misunderstood him and also to redeem him, if you will, for those who had started to dislike him. So the gist of the essay, or the gist of the original lecture and then the essay, is that Paul is calling the church to be a lot more cross-shaped than American or North American Christians often are, and a lot more um, uh, different from the culture we live in than we often are, and then also he's calling us to be a lot more corporate or communal, less individualistic than we often are. Um, we being Western Christians or North American Christians. So those were kind of the themes I developed in that, in that chapter. Um, so yeah, I, th I do think Paul has some things to say to the church that the church wouldn't necessarily, Western North American church, wouldn't necessarily jump up and down and say, okay, that sounds like a great idea, Paul. Yeah, wow. I, and I remember in reading Paul, um, the, the, a book from a few years ago, the first time, that's the first time I saw someone comparing King um, to, to St. Paul, Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, right, the, the, first, the opening of my little book, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that was very interesting there. And um, yeah, related to what you're saying about individualism, many modern English readers often read um, Paul's, uh, when he says you, they read it as singular, uh, and as referring yeah. to an individual rather than to a community. And um, that is, we have Paul's verse, work out your salvation, and we think that's a reference to, to individual salvation. Can you speak into this, um, into kind of individualism, which seeps into uh, a, a lot of American churches? It's in the American psyche, I guess. Can you speak into how we need to recover uh, this this communal way of of looking, or rather, recover Paul's communal emphasis. Can you speak into that? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, 
Well, what I, what I tell my students is you need to learn either Greek or Spanish <laughs> because you wouldn't have this problem if you read the Bible in either of those languages. And both of them are very useful, uh, in our, especially in our context, uh, because they have plural use and plural um, ways of saying imperatives. So um, present your bodies is a plural imperative. Uh, uh, work out your salvation is a plural imperative verb and a, and a plural pronoun, uh, your. So, and these are completely perfectly obvious in both, you know, in, in many languages, but not in, in 21st century English. Mm. Um, so it, it's partly a language issue that is reinforced by the realities of Western and especially American individualism about pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and it gets uh, it becomes into the um, church that you know high emphasis, strong emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus, which becomes almost private, mm. and um, not an emphasis on being the church together. Um, now, Paul is not an either or kind of person; he's a both and kind of person. He he would be the last one to get rid of the I and. You know, I am crucified with Christ, or, uh, you know, I die daily, as, I, as mm-hmm. I've mentioned. At the same time, he would be the first to say that can only happen responsibly, or if at all, in the context of a community. Um, God sent the Son into the world not to save uh, you know, a bunch of individuals, but to create a new people who would be a body of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, together, not simply each individual being a, a temple. So we have a lot of work to do in the American church, both in terms of embracing the cross as not only the source of our salvation, but the shape of our salvation, mm-hmm. and in terms of seeing how the, the hour in that sentence is critical to uh, to being Christian in, in the contemporary world. Wow. Uh, I, in, in participating in Christ's year, in, in talking about Galatians 2, you write that we this ought to unite rather than divide members of the one universal uh, body of Christ. And, and so can you speak into this a bit? And how might Paul respond to the many fractures and general uh, disunity plaguing um, our churches today? Uh, d- does Paul have yeah. a solution to that? Just about every Pauline letter, if not every Pauline letter, is about is about unity, mm. uh, whether it's Gentile Jew unity or slave free unity or just general ecclesial unity. Uh, this is high on his priority list, as it was high on the priority of and the priorities of Jesus. Witness John seventeen. Um, so I think it's it's the case that. We as Christians tend to look for and emphasize our differences. Um, I'm Protestant. You're Catholic. That's a problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, you believe in uh, praying to Mary. I, I believe in praying directly to Jesus mm-hmm. or to the Father. Um, you, uh, you, you know, I'm I'm Presbyterian. You're Baptist. We baptize children because we think they're part of the covenant family. You you only baptize adults, and and 
that doesn't give enough space for the grace of God working in the community. So there's all these things that I think are relatively um, minor cultural differences and theological differences that we exacerbate and overemphasize, and it, it prevents us from coming together as one body bearing witness to the gospel in the world. So, um, uh, some people may think that two of the two examples I just gave, one might be more important or, or more dividing than the other, um, but we, we have to listen to other people and hear other traditions and other individuals why they believe what they believe. There are some non-negotiables, and I, I think they are summed up for us in the uh, Apostles' Creed and the and what we call the Nicene Creed and, and other basic Christian beliefs. They're, they're, but once we get beyond those, I think we need to learn to live with difference and see unity um, uh, as, a, as a fundamental reality and a fundamental goal of of the church today. Mm. Wow. That's, that's really good. You, you know, also in, uh, participating in Christ that there's a, a buzzword in Christian circles and that's missional. Um, there's a, and, and you say that there's a missional emphasis in Paul. Uh, but when you look at how we are using this and how we think of missions, uh, do you think we are in alignment, uh, with the letters and theology of Paul, or are we a little off? Well, it depends on who the we is. That's a big, <laughs> big question about a lot of different people. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to speak to the, the fundamental concern that I think Paul would have that, that I would share. <clears throat> Excuse me. When, sometimes when people talk about Christian mission or being missional, they um, mean certain things that are usually um, narrowly defined by their particular context. So it might mean um, uh, having a neighborhood presence that allows uh, for conversation and uh, hospitality in a non-threatening kind of way. Um, it, it may mean in another context uh, uh, engaging in social action that is faithful to biblical principles or biblical values, whether that be protecting immigrants or protecting the unborn, depending on where you find the emphasis in, in Scripture and in the Christian understanding of things. But... Um, to me, and I think for Paul, missional means understanding, identifying with, and embodying what what God was up to in Christ, or what God's mission was in the world through Christ. And Paul articulates that in a variety of ways, but perhaps the most well-known and the one that is uh, maybe the most helpful to think through is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, or God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So, reconciliation, then, I think is at the heart of the gospel, and that includes reconciliation of people to God, that, that identifies the need for uh, 
recognizing their own um, fallenness, their own uh, entrapment in the systems and the sins of this world, and their need for liberation from that, their need for transformation. But it also involves um, participating in, in the ongoing reconciliation of the world, which means working in, in the name of, of God, in the name of Christ, and through the power of the Spirit, to see um, what the to, to see uh, a growth in what the biblical prophets call shalom, the, mm. where where people are are in good relations with one another and with God and with the entire creation. I think that's what Paul has in mind when he work, uses words like reconciliation or salvation. We see in Romans eight that kind of cosmic picture of of salvation that Paul paints there, but. Um, a term that I use, Paul doesn't use this term, but I think he would approve of it, is that the, we, we need not just to speak the gospel, but we need to embody the gospel. And I even wrote a book called Becoming the Gospel, which doesn't mean that we actually, you know, that we're the good news, but rather we embody the good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the phrase that I like even more than becoming the gospel is that we are called to become a living exegesis of the gospel. Wow. The church is, uh, is called to be a living exegesis of the gospel, so we live it out in the way we live and together individually, how we relate to our neighbors, our friends, even our enemies, uh, the world in general. Um, yeah, so I think, we, again, we have a long way to go in understanding what, what Paul means when he, when he uses words that we, that we call mission. Sure. And you mentioned peace or shalom, and I know that at one point you talked, I think in chapter 10, about how sometimes when we read grace and peace to you, uh, to you all uh, from Paul, we, we tend to just devalue this as it's just a formality. And you talked yeah. about how we need to recover what grace actually means, as well as shalom, what it means um, in Paul. And, and that was a really helpful section. Uh, um, yeah, how, thank you. how do we look at yeah, peace? Yeah, it's not a it's not a throwaway line. Grace and peace. <laughs> yeah. Those words. Those words don't just start the letters. They they work their way through the letters and sometimes end up at the end of the letters. Um, kingdom of kingdom of the kingdom of God. A phrase Paul doesn't use very often is uh, justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, according to Romans. So um, it's it's an important part. I mean. The, the longer I, I spend time with Paul, the more I realize, even though he never called himself a prophet, he fits into the mold of the biblical prophets in many ways. And uh, everything from being called from his mother's womb to uh, speaking about the salvation of God in terms of grace and peace and, and justice or righteousness. Mm, wow. And a little bit, of, uh, a few minutes ago, you touched on fallenness and entrapment. Um, and, and so I've been itching to ask, um, you know, a scholar, someone who immerses himself or herself in, in the letters of Paul, uh, when it comes to the flesh, um, what what do you feel are, are good translations or connotations of the flesh? Because you find sinful nature, I think in the NIV sometimes, fallen nature. What I'm hearing sometimes is the false self. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a uh, very interesting. You asked that question. I was just <laughs> finishing up. I'm writing a commentary on Romans, and I was just finishing up, literally this morning, 
my uh, comments on Romans 7, oh, wow. which, which, which is life in the flesh. Mm-hmm. So I think for Paul, there are two uses of the word flesh. One is neutral and one is negative. So, for instance, in Galatians 2, the life I now live in the flesh is neutral. It's about, it's being, it's what it means to be human. Mm. We have a body. We have uh, the normal aspects of, of human life that we, um, that constitute what it means to be a person. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the negative understanding of the flesh. And that we see particularly in places like Romans 7, to live according to the flesh, or Romans 7 and, and then again repeated in 8, um, to live in the flesh or according to the flesh or uh, similar phrases, means to live in a way that is um, an embodied life that is not empowered by the uh, presence of the Spirit. So it means an, a life that is in opposition to God and to humans. It's the anti-shalom life, if you will. It's the anti-spirit life. Um, you know, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit mm. in Galatians chapter 5. So I, I think it's important. I would not use the term sinful nature. Yeah. I don't think the anti I don't remember if the new NIV uses that, but the old NIV did. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't like that term. It's. It's not about a nature that we have. It's about uh, a a choice that's been made that becomes a non-choice by virtue of habit and and the ongoing effects of sin, capital S, the power that we live in this way that is ignorant of and or deliberately opposed to the spirit of God. And that's what it means to live in the flesh. Wow. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, Oh, sure. And and, uh, there's uh, a verse by Paul that's used often is, "I I became or I become all things to all people. And you hit a little bit on this, um, this aspect of, of trying to bait people to, to find Christ or to make the gospel palatable. And so when it comes to a verse like, I, became, I, I become all things to all people, and when uh, more seeker-sensitive churches use this to mean that we have to bait people, how do you think Paul would, would take this and how this verse is being used in that sense? Paul would be the last person to water down the gospel or to make it palatable. Yeah. Um, he, he suffers he, he, for the gospel that he believes is the gospel of God. He, um, he goes to battle, if you will, with Peter, in, in, uh, as recorded in Galatians. He calls the Corinthian uh, uh, teachers who, who have kind of prosperity gospel he calls them um messengers of satan and pseudo apostles and mm-hmm. you know uh super apostles uh, tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. so uh yeah paul would certainly not water down the gospel i mm-hmm. think what happens is in the interest of in the context of recognizing the decline of christian um church membership and Christian 
and in some for some people, the so-called impact of Christianity on culture uh, in the United States, in particular, or other Western nations, Australia, England. Um, you you so so the idea is, I think, you want to try to get people back yeah. interested without making the gospel sound either too um, difficult, too demanding too exclusive, to, uh, you know, fill in the blank. And I think that is not only pragmatically shooting ourselves in the foot, it is a betrayal of the gospel. Um, The gospel is good news not because it makes people feel good, but because it transforms people. Mm. Wow. And um, I think we want to be sensitive to people in the sense of understanding where they're coming from and uh, their cultural situation that that may affect what they hear when when they hear Christian talk or, or even meet Christian people. Uh, and I, I think that's sort of what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about becoming all things to all people. That's not watering down the gospel or whatever. It is uh, cultural sensitivity, as he says, uh, I, I became like a Jew to Jews, and like a Gentile to Gentiles, and like um, uh, uh, the um, weak to the weak. What yeah. he doesn't say, and this is critical, he doesn't say to the powerful, I became like a powerful person. Mm. That for Paul would be another betrayal of the gospel. Because that's not a matter of ethnicity, that's a matter of uh, inappropriate uh, uh, power and trying to, to um, placate or identify with or um, whatever, uh, the rich and the powerful. And yeah. Paul has no tolerance for that. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. And I hear you saying that Paul would be the last person to sacrifice discipleship uh, or and or betray the gospel just for numbers in essence just for more Absol- absolutely yeah paul would have paul would laugh at the idea of, of numbers mm. considering the fact that most of the early christian congregations that he founded and pastored could all each of them could fit in a small house um wow. some of them <laughs> probably probably some of them could have probably fit in a uh in a work room of a or a shop or a, a tenement apartment that maybe held, held, you know, 12 or 15 people. So uh, Paul was less concerned about the numbers than probably any evangelist in the history of the world, even yeah. though he wanted to take the gospel to the whole world. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, that is interesting uh, when you put it that way. Uh, and when it comes to your own understanding of Paul, um, uh, in participation and other themes, Paul in general, uh, what books or authors, courses taken, or experiences um, have really helped you understand Paul and, and get to the point you're at um, right now? Can you unpack a bit of your journey uh, as we mm. go towards the end? Yeah. Well, um, I can't say that there was a particular... I, mean, I, I, I had the privilege of studying with some very fine... Pauline scholars at Princeton Theological Seminary when I was a, an MDiv student and a graduate student in 
student there back in um, the day, so to speak. Um, I developed a lot of my thinking about Paul um, sort of independent of what others were, independently of what others were doing. I was probably indirectly and maybe to some degree directly influenced by the work of E.P. Sanders, whose book came out just as I was starting, his most famous book came out just as I was starting my graduate school, um, seminary and graduate school education. Um, Paul and Palestinian Judaism being that book in which he argues that for Paul, uh, participation in Christ is, is essentially more significant than justification, although he sort of says they're two sides of the same coin too. But I think I had developed a lot of my own thinking before I found it affirmed by his work because I didn't have the chance to read that as carefully as I should have when it first came out. Mm. Um, but in terms of the probably the greatest two influences on me in terms of understanding Paul, even though I disagree with one of these two people I'm going to mention, uh, are Richard Hayes and Tom Wright. Mm. Um, Richard Hayes is very much in the kind of uh, arena of focusing on participating in Christ. He, uh, his book, The Faith of Jesus Christ, uh, had a strong influence on me and some other of his early works when I was, um, as I said, in my seminary and grad, especially graduate school days. And then uh, his book, Moral Vision of the New Testament, Echoes of Scripture and the Letters of Paul, those kinds of things, and other, uh, especially essays that he's written over the years, great influence on me. Although, um, I don't, I think in terms of participation, he may have, his work may have had more influence on me than Sanders, even mm -hmm. though Sanders may have direct, directly addressed some things a little bit more than, than Richard. Tom Wright, on the other hand, has just influenced me in a, in a whole lot of ways, even though uh, he and I part company in, in a significant way about justification. Mm. Uh, a lot of people don't like Tom's understanding of justification because they feel like it's too new perspective and doesn't respect the old uh, individual understanding of justification, whereas I think he doesn't go far enough in terms of understanding justification as transformative. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have concerns about him for different reasons. But both Richard Hayes and Tom Wright are, are, are my very good friends, and we, we agree on lots of things together and have been mutually influenced. Uh, of course, there are other people along the way, but I would say those, those names have been the most significant in terms of my own journey with Paul. Wow. That's awesome. And, and I guess a, a final question would be, uh, for those who want to delve deeper into participation um, and this emphasis in Paul, what resources and or uh, tips would you recommend? Uh, where should one start? Yeah, well, uh, without drawing too much attention to my own work, I would start with, my work because it's um, my, my focus for the last 20 years has been on participating in Christ. So I don't think there's too many other um, uh, scholars in the world who have made that their, their primary focus 
for half of their you know, uh, career. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, that aside, and, and whether that's starting with a little booklet like the participation booklet I mentioned or um, a more uh, missional focus, if that's your interest, becoming the gospel or the sort of starting point of all this, Cruciformity, which is coming out in the 20th anniversary edition in May of next year. It will be 20 years old. Um, or this book, Participating in Christ. So there's lots of places to get started. In terms of other people, a name that some um, may be familiar with is Ben Blackwell. Mm, yes. um, Ben's an important scholar at Houston Baptist University who's also in the Participationist School. The late Jimmy Dunn, James Dunn, who died just a few months ago, um, his theology of the Apostle Paul puts a lot of emphasis on participation. So that's a, that's a good starting point with a book that some people may already have. Uh, obviously, Sanders uh, would be a more technical read and a very important book. But um, those are those are those would be some starting places. But if you had to start one place, I would start rereading the letters of Paul, looking for all the participation language, and then uh, go to these secondary sources. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Gorman, for your time and thank you for your contribution uh, through this this book. I highly recommend uh, participating in Christ and and. Uh, thank you for your voice in evangelicalism today, in Christianity today, in that we need to recover a communal emphasis, uh, also the transformation emphasis in Paul. So, so thank you for that, and thank you so much for your time today as well. Well, well thank you, Paul. It's been great to be with you, and um, uh, my best to you and to your listeners, and thank you for this opportunity. Sure. Blessings. You too.